Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of men to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great words. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and the provinces. I got sinners, both men and women, and many cucumbines and the, uh, the, the delight of the sons of, of men. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pressure, pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. As there is more gain in light than in darkness, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, What happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that is in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous for me. For all is vanity and and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun seeing that I must leave it to the men who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet, he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to disappear over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. 
This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does, does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from, is from the hand of God. For apart, for apart from him who can eat and who can have enjoyment. For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner... He has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. This is the word of God. I'm going to invite everyone to clap along if you feel that happiness is the truth. Are you happy? Do you feel like a room without a roof? All right, so this is the beauty of Zoom, where we've got everybody muted. So people clapped, but uh, we're a Presbyterian church. We, we didn't allow it to interrupt our seriousness at all. Um, happiness, when you have the experience of being happy, most people find themselves thinking, this is what I want most of my life to be like. And in the opposite, when you're struggling, when you're suffering, you feel, I don't want this to continue. And that creates a complicated relationship with happiness. Uh, Raising the question for us, is happiness something you should want? Is it something you should expect? Is it something you should pursue? I'm asking that at a time where where maybe if anxiety is something you want, that's an achievable goal. (laughs) Um, But is now a time when happiness is something that, that you should be pursuing? And, and it's a complicated question uh, for, for a number of reasons. So, for example, we know that even if happiness in the moment is good, if somebody is so committed to it that they'll do anything to get it, that it, it likely does at least two things. One is it could lead to the kinds of compromises that harm others. If, I'm, if I need to be happy, it, it may lead me to make choices that, that are costly for others. But also, it doesn't tend to work. If I'm so desperate for happiness that every decision is to try to get more of it, the world seems to be designed such that you wind up with less of it. And so then on the other hand, some people want to manage their expectations. You learn to delay gratification. And so you'll wait for happiness in the future, but you're always delaying it, that since it's not present in your life, uh, you're not experiencing it. How long can you go on waiting one day to be happy? And then you throw into the mix life in the kind of world we're reading about in the book of Ecclesiastes, where things don't go as we plan. And so you manage your expectations because you don't like being disappointed and, and you don't want to hope for happiness because when you're not happy, it's another reminder that you're a failure, not just at being happy, but, but it's evidence of what you're seeming to hold on to, that the whole of your life is just evidence that you're not good enough. So I hope for something that's so hard to grasp. Or you lose a loved one. And then in a moment of happiness, you have this feeling of guilt. Uh, is it a betrayal to what we had? Is it okay to be happy? And, and, and sometimes, for any number of reasons, we, we get into this mode where, where we're uncomfortable with happiness. If, if I'm happy, there must be something wrong. Or, or maybe in a society where others are not happy, I, I should feel guilty 
for being happy. And, and so, so is happiness something we should pursue? It gets even more complicated if you're a Christian, because Jesus warns us life in this world will be filled with hardship. He says we should count the cost before following him, which means we should be prepared to, to suffer or to make hard choices. And so you could start to think that if you're experiencing happiness in the Christian life, it must be because of compromise or superficiality. Are we really to expect to have joy? And um, the, the short answer is yes, Jesus comes so that we would have more joy, but of a real substantial joy, the, the kind that we miss out on and lose in our world. And we're looking today at chapter two of Ecclesiastes, where we're looking at this guy, they, they call him Koheleth, that's the Hebrew word, since he's not named with a, with a specific name. Um, he's sharing his story. We're reading, it reads like an autobiography or a memoir, except it's really a first-person narrative of somebody else presenting him. And we're supposed to be thinking of Solomon the king. You get that from the first chapter. Uh, and his life, and he's sharing with us that how he wisely went through life and lived and reported things, uh, and it's able to make us wise. And so as we begin today, I want to begin with a question, which is what life do you want to live? As we begin with the question, what life do you want to live? We're looking at this figure in Ecclesiastes of a king who wanted a life of fullness, of prosperity. He, he sought pleasure. And, that, and that's where we begin in verse one. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That testing is part of his wisdom. He's not going to be like a fool, just doing whatever he feels. But he's going to try to, to learn how to live a good life. And so he's going to test with pleasure. Verse three, he says, I searched my heart to how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. So again, he's doing this not in some random way, not, not in a foolish, impulsive way. He's trying to, to learn about life and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so here he is saying, I'm, I'm going I'm to find out what is good for the children of man. What, what, is, what is a good life? What a great question. And this phrase, children of man, you take it from Hebrew. The Hebrew word for man is Adam. So it it's often just means humankind. But as we're looking at his story, as a church, we're saying, we want to understand the book of Ecclesiastes in the context of the whole of the Bible. And the opening four chapters of the Bible in particular set a trajectory that help us understand all that follows in the rest of the Bible. And so while when he talked about wanting to know what's good for the children of man, he might just be saying humanity. But, but, but literally in Hebrew, he's saying, well, what's good for the children of Adam? Um, and, and that does link us back to that opening story of Genesis 1, where God makes all things good. And he creates a, a person he names Adam because God's purpose for humanity is good. And, and in that light, when you read Ecclesiastes 2, and if you think of what is the vision for goodness that God sets out, so much of it still remains. And so he's trying to take hold of that goodness, but now we live in a world with good and evil. Everything that he's doing is corrupted, and so the goodness is uh, insubstantial. And so, uh, for instance, when he talks about um, wine in verse 3, uh, see, see, outside of wisdom, there's a function that wine has for people as they experience good and evil, and it's to try to numb themselves from the evil. It's to be committed to pleasure and to want to drown out your problems. And, and he's doing something different. He's not saying my life is so bad that I'm trying to escape. 
Because even if we could be sympathetic to anyone in that situation, anyone who's ever suffered knows that somebody who's desperate and says, I just don't want to feel the suffering anymore, that it's, it's hard to despise them. <laughs> so it's understandable that people want to escape, but wisdom tells us that, that, that if wine, for instance, is playing a function in your life that, that is keeping you from feeling your troubles, your, your troubles are probably getting worse while you're not feeling them <laughs> and you're not doing anything to fix them. And so, so this is not a path of wisdom. That, that's not the path uh, Koheleth is on. When he talks about wine, he's not trying to avoid his problems, but he's saying, my life is good and I want it to be better. And maybe here's something that will bring out more of a fullness. And he's talking about fruit from trees, which is what, what mine, wine is made from. In verses four to six, he talks about these great works, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools. And so Genesis one, God makes Adam in his image. So as God exercises power through his goodness and wisdom, those are themes in Genesis 1. He makes mankind to be like him on the earth, and he gives him dominion, that word. Now, Adam, rule over the world as I did. Use the power I give you um, in goodness and in wisdom so there's something imitative of God so that on earth God's will be done. And so then in Genesis 2, we find that God begins kind of like a starter and sourdough. <laughs> you have that one lump, and then the whole bread is made from it. God forms a garden that he calls Eden, and he places the man into it, and it's fruitful, and there's streams of water, uh, and it's not good that he's alone, so he creates a helpmate so that he would fill the earth. He's supposed to take that Eden and extend it until it covers all of the earth, and that's the human task, and, and yet we, we read in Genesis 3 and 4 where things go wrong, where rather than taking of the tree of life and bringing life into the world, they take of the tree of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, so now they're the good remains. We're still trying to have a good life, but evil corrupts everything. It confuses everything. And so, so when we read him talking about houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and trees and pools, yes, this is what kings of all ages maybe aspire to, but, but not for no reason. It's because of how God has made humanity that, that the ruler of the earth, the king, should exercise wisdom so that that things are ordered and made beautiful and are fruitful and that they're places of enjoyment. The problem is, um, after Genesis 3, after we've gone out of Eden, out of the presence of God, and we start to build culture and society, Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel, tells us that, that now our violence, our envy, our jealousy, our resentment is in it. And so now when the kings acquire these things, um, that's not necessarily for the enjoyment of the people of the earth. But here's a king who sits who's intentionally following this vision of, of God's mandate for humanity. And, and the description here, verse five, all kinds of fruit trees. That's, he's taking the Garden of Eden, taking with him, verses seven to eight. Now he gets into the kings of the earth, the possessions of people, of animals, of gold and silver, of concubines. And, and he takes this Edenic vision and he starts to play it out in a way that begins good, but but becomes like the kings of the earth, the rulers of our world, uh, where, where power is not always with goodness, but it also has evil in it. And so uh, think of, uh, okay, today in a modern city like New York, yeah, we still build gardens, we still want uh, environmental things, but maybe, maybe today it's, it's, it's more of the, the high tower, the 50-story you know, uh, building. Um, maybe the imagery has changed a little bit, but you look throughout history, you go south of Paris and Versailles, and there the various kings 
showed their, their wisdom and power through making gardens and having fountains with water and having servants. And it's, it's remarkable that over time and over culture, um, the task of becoming the greatest in society hasn't changed all that much. There's, there's still echoes of Eden, but it's always corrupted. And so I read about uh, Louis XVI, is that who it was during the French Revolution where he had to flee Paris and he goes to lock himself up in Versailles and the people come because they're not feeling, you know, because you live in this wonderful pa palace, all of our lives are, are doing well, but they're starting to feel like you're prospering at our expense. And that's always the, the danger. And so in verse nine, he says, I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And so we have a picture of somebody who realizes the call of Adam, but, but in a certain way, he, he, the task of, of being wise and prospering and having fruit and water and, and a society, all of that's there, but it's not reflecting fully the image of God. It's not in the presence of God. And so there's always something corrupting in it. And so, so Koheleth, who is presented to us, we're supposed to be thinking about Solomon. He says, I've become great. And it becomes a story that says, you know, I became the greatest imaginable. I, I realize the goals that human beings have and strive for. And I'm here to report back to you. <laughs> What's it like? Verse 11. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and is striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And so here, here's a story presented to us. I, I did everything that, that's in the human heart, seeking pleasure and being wise and making sacrifices and building. And, and at the end of the day, I, I wasn't satisfied. And, and here's how the story comes as a warning to us that helps us. This is what, where Ecclesiastes can help us be wise. Do you feel that your dissatisfaction is because you have not yet realized your goals or do you feel that your dissatisfaction is because you've already failed in enough of them that you've given up hope that you will be satisfied realizing those goals that's so much of the human experience and we're given a picture here and we're shown here's somebody who's realized the aspirations of all of humanity he was the best the brightest the most prominent comfortable powerful he had everything at his disposal and he's telling you he got there and it was empty. He was dissatisfied. Now, Ecclesiastes is about wisdom, not folly. Does that mean don't work hard, don't order things, don't have goals? No, that's the way of foolishness. But it says along the way, if you are dissatisfied, but you think one day these things will satisfy you, you're misunderstanding life. If you feel you've gotten middle-aged, middle management, or wherever your failures start to compound and you realize the vision I had for my life is not being realized. And you think the reason that I, I'm struggling is because there's something wrong with me. Solomon is saying, that's not the whole truth. <laughs> there's something wrong with the way the world presents itself and the task of humanity, that it's not going to lead you to satisfaction. And that's what he's showing us, that we could be wise. And he's saying, don't worry about some costs. It doesn't matter how you've lived, what choices you've made. Don't keep pursuing vain things. They won't satisfy you. Uh, even, this, even these good things, as long as there's corruption in them, um, life will be somewhat dissatisfying. And so, so that first question, what, what kind of life do you want to live? You should want a life of fullness, of joy. You shouldn't aim low. But here's a second question. How do you get this life? <laughs> uh, what are the 
what are the steps towards actually acting on those desires? Do you want to be happy, joyful, satisfied? You should. But what are you doing? How are you getting this? And so the king is presented to us, uh, this kingly picture of, of what one person who's at the top of the hierarchy of society could accomplish. And then in verse 12, the question comes when he reports, I had all of these things and it wasn't satisfying. Verse 12, now what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what's already been done. There's something unoriginal about human beings. We, we, we think, especially those of us who think individualistically, I'm going to create my own goals, my own dream, my own desire. But really, we're, we're looking for our own little sub-paths along other people's goals. We, we tend to want whoever the person is in charge sort of sets the pace, that there's something of what they have or what they've achieved that makes us feel that's what I need. And so after you have somebody like Goheleth, somebody like Solomon, somebody like the great king, what do we do? Well, we can't be the king because there's only one king, but we could do things like him. We could work hard to, to accumulate and to get a reputation and to, to have power over people. And we could do all of these things and we'll never be Solomon, but we can be like Solomon. We could imitate him. We could have some of what he has. And what, what, what the Bible is presenting is be careful. Um, don't look at the person on the top and assume that striving there will lead you to satisfaction. The person on the top is saying, I got there. <laughs> Choose a different way of life. So, so verse 13, he says, I saw that there's more gain in wisdom than folly. And, and that's where this is an important book, Ecclesiastes. It's not a book that says, seize the day, give up on your ambitions, just enjoy today. It's saying, look, we know that there's a way of foolishness. Where, where you're not exercising wisdom and power, you're not working hard, you have no ambition. And, and that tends to lead to an unraveling of things where then your dissatisfaction takes the form of blaming everybody else and hating the world or hating yourself. Let's not be foolish. So he keeps his wisdom with him as he's experimenting in life. But he says, but at the end of the day, my wisdom itself helped me to live well, but wisdom wasn't the answer. Wisdom didn't lead to joy, but in this world of good and evil, it helped me to avoid a lot of the, the flaws of evil. It made me do things that were more good. But at the end of the day, the result was not joy, but, but I, I had a deepening understanding of the complexity of our world so that I despaired. And so he keeps wisdom with us, with him. He, he wants to hold on to it. His recommendation is, yeah, wisdom is better than folly. But as he's observing the world, one of the, or two of the themes really throughout this book is he's grappling with what he can't know and what he can't control. And so he's gaining wisdom. He's, he's observing and he's learning. There's so much you can know and you should know it because your life will be better if you do. But there's always what you don't know. And there's always what you may know, but you just can't fix or change or have control over. And for this reason, death keeps coming up in the book of Ecclesiastes, because if you're simply observing and thinking and watching, death is puzzling. It, it, it confronts you with what you don't know. I want, I want something lasting, I want something sustaining, I don't want the ephemeral. And whether you die at 20, or at 50, or at 100, um, if death is where we're all going, it trivializes things. And so he, he actually despairs about his own wisdom in verse 15, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so very wise? Maybe the fool dies at 20 because they were trying some foolish stunt and I could avoid all of that and live well until I'm 70. But at the end of the day, this life goes so quickly. And have I really, have I really beaten the system? You can't beat death. 
You can't understand it. And, and, and death also, also uh, puts a shadow over life itself. And so wisdom in, in the biblical tradition has to do with understanding and information, but it has to do with action. So here's somebody who has both. He's seeing, he's observing, he's learning, but he's putting it into action. Most of us can't keep those together. So we, we think and we learn and then we think some more and then we think some more and we never do anything. Or we say, let's get out there and do something, but without thinking, you make a mess of things. Um, here's somebody who actually, he thought, he understood, he acted, and yet he's finding the more I understand, the more I'm troubled by, by the triviality of death. But the more that I did as well, and so then he moves on from wisdom to, to toil, to work. And in verses 18 and 19, he says, I hated all my toil in which I toiled over the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom for under the sun. And one of the questions throughout the book is what gain is there? What profit? And isn't that what, what, what wisdom helps us to do is to, to increase and to add to our lives? And now he's saying, I've learned a lot, but I haven't understood death. And, and so now I'm unhappy because of that. And now I've, I've managed my life so that things are going well. But, but the more I increase, the more I realize this too is futile because, because how much do I really need? <laughs> and then I die and somebody takes over my foundation all of that philanthropy, and now you have some fool who's wasting my funds. And this is, has an echo of Solomon's story. You read the story in 1 Kings, and, and there's a number of things about Solomon, but in focus is his wisdom. But his wisdom is exercised in the central narrative that he builds the temple in Jerusalem. That's his big accomplishment in a sense. He did other things, but, but everything else is around that, his wealth and his wisdom and his gardens all that are around this one central thing as First Kings tells the story. Ecclesiastes is telling the story saying, forget about the temple, let's look at the rest of his life. But, but the temple was a permanent building uh, modeled on the, uh, on the tabernacle, which was given in the days of Moses. And you read about the tabernacle, and, and what is it? Well, it's a place that God would be present with his people. And you read the instructions, and there is to be pomegranates, and there is to be animals, and there's this whole setup that if you read Genesis 2, there's a sense in which the, the tabernacle has something of the reality of Eden. The vision is, is held before these people that on all the earth we've left God, but if we still have access to God, which, which the tabernacle was meant to be a place of worship, well, then we've entered into the thing that makes paradise paradise, but that we lost. And so Solomon wants to take the, the tabernacle and make it enduring and make it permanent. He, he builds a temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was not meant to be like the temples that you would see throughout the world, where nations said, this is our God. We have him in our midst. But for the people of Israel, this is the Genesis 1 God, the God of the heavens and the earth, the God of the whole world. He's not confined to temples, but they would say the temple was his footstool. <laughs> so the Lord reigns in glory over the heavens and the earth, but we are a people that, that he rests uh, something of his presence in our midst. And that makes the difference. That that brings life into us as a community. It makes us more hopeful. And so Solomon prays when he dedicates the table, Lord, if we stray, if we get anything wrong, don't cast us out as happened in the Garden of Eden, but bring us back. Make it so we can have forgiveness. And he even prays that this would be a place that the, the ends of the earth would come. 
And so he builds this wonderful temple and it's glorious. And, and what is Solomon's story? He dies, as he would expect, and he has a son, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam acts with foolishness. That's the introduction in 1 Kings. Um, so now you have some people and we find the backstory as the temple is beautiful, but those who built it are a little bit tired from having been made. So here's, here's Koheleth who acquires slaves and concubines, a, a great model for us to aspire to, not a great model if you talk to the slaves and the concubines. So the people come and they say to Rehoboam, could you rule a bit different than your father? And these wise elders tell him, show kindness to the people and they'll be loyal. But Rehoboam says, I need to show what, what strong leadership looks like. I need to show what a king in the earth looks like. And he says, I'm going to rule with harshness. And that foolish decision, what did it do? A man named Jeroboam rises up and says, anyone who doesn't like to be under this rule, come with me. Israel was divided into 12 tribes. 10 of them went with Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, being politically savvy, but spiritually problematic, realized as long as people are leaving my section to cross over into Jerusalem to worship God, which is what you're supposed to do, worship in one place alone. Pragmatically, as a political decision, I, I should probably have a couple of other worship places to make sure that our people never need to go back to Jerusalem. And you look at how that unfolds. And the story of the kings has the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Not a single one in the north is good. Most of the ones in the South are not, but occasionally they're commended and, and they're commended in relationship to what happens in the temple. And so then the kings in the North bring ruin. The Assyrians come in and destroy the Northern kingdom and the 10 tribes are gone forever, forever. There's, there's no genetic trace to Simeon, uh, to Joseph. And so Solomon builds this temple. Not only will this unify our nation, but this will unify the world. And his foolish son wants to show that he was more powerful than his father. And he loses everyone except the kings, the tribe of Judah, and the priests, the people of Levi. And he lost everything. And so, so the echoes of that should be in our mind as we, as we read Koheleth, saying, what gain is there? The, the whole of my life I live in, and I acquire all of these great things, and then I'm gone. And I'm forgotten. My, my legacy is not followed out on, but some fool takes what I have and, and ruins it. And, and what's his conclusion? Uh, verse 17, I hated life. Verse 18, I hated all my toil. And see, death plagues us. And we think if, if I could have enough wisdom, I might, be able to, I might be able to have some happiness despite that. If I, if I work hard and if I achieve and I accomplish, my life will be worth having lived. And Ecclesiastes brings attention. If you live like a fool, your life is going to be miserable. <laughs> but here's the thing. If, if you're paying attention, if you live wisely, you're also at risk. You may hate life. You may also hate your toil. And so verse 23, the description of humanity, all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. I wonder how many of you that describes you these days, that that describes in the last maybe month, me at night, <laughs> truly giving thanks for God's provision, but my heart not being at rest. Things are, are, are not as full, as, as good as they should be, and, and I'm worried. I shouldn't be. But what's the nature of our work? What's the nature of our aspirations? This world has an ephemerality, and, and it troubles us. And so uh, I remember about 10 years ago reading that the most 
popular class with students, just going by registration at Harvard, was a class on happiness, psychology professor uh, Tal Ben-Shahar. Um, read recently, the, the headlines have been coming up, the most popular class at Yale, a class on happiness, Laurie Santos, another psychologist. Most popular class at Princeton, introduction to accounting. That's not true. I haven't read anything about any headlines about Princeton. But here's Harvard and Yale. Most popular classes uh, in terms of res registration, a class on happiness. Why? Now, it could be great professors who lecture well. That, that would make classes popular. But that's not like we're reading about Michael Sandel or these other professors that are just really dynamic. There's something about happiness uh, that we're longing for. And, and an elite institution, at least historically, has said we're preparing people to send them into the world. And so anyone having the privilege of a, that education should say, no matter what I'm going to do with my life and my work, I should learn how to bring something of goodness to make people happy. It's understandable that people would register for it if only for that reason. How could I fill my job with goodness? And yet I can't help think that so many of the individuals who registered registered not because they were trying to be better prepared how to help others, but because they were looking for answers to the questions that have not yet been answered in the rest of the curriculum. How do I build a successful life? What is meaningful? What is true? What is, what is good and what will satisfy me? And we hear reports of people, no matter what they've achieved, no matter what their promise is, if, you, if you're educated at an elite institution, that's hopeful for your future. Why would your presence not be present, not be satisfying? And at Columbia University in our neighborhood, do we ever hear students say, I hate life? Do we ever hear people say, I hate my toil, my work? And then we graduate and we go into the world of people at Emmanuel, find themselves hating life, hating their toil, and wondering what it's all about, and wondering why did I think that the next accomplishment, the next achievement, the next possession would satisfy me? And if we sat back, we would all say, we knew that it wouldn't, but we wanted to fill our lives with goodness, which is wise, but we're struggling because it's not delivering on happiness. And so on the question, how will you build this life, as much as we know won't satisfy us, we either don't know what will or we have so little faith that what do we do? We look to whoever's the king, whether it's a literal king, Louis XVI, whether it's a figurative leader, Bill Gates, and we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to value, <laughs> I'm going to aspire, I'm going to go for what success looks like in this world even though everyone at the top says, yeah, look, I, I lived my life strategically and well, and maybe I don't have regrets, but am I happy? Maybe not. Some people are, some people aren't. But you go to a homeless shelter, some people are happy and some people are not. So all that work, what was it for? Here's the last question. Who gives us this life? This is one of the things that we, we learn from Ecclesiastes. He's talking about everything that he sought after, everything he tried to grab hold of, and he's saying it's, it's hevel, it's that's a Hebrew word. It's, it's, it's mist. It's vapor. Everything I try to grab, it's as real as I can see, but it's like smoke that when I put my hand on it, I, I can't take anything with me, not for more than a moment. And what we're told, though, is, but, but that doesn't mean that we're left to be empty. But we're, we're fools if we think that we can go out in the world away from the presence of God and take hold of the world that he's given us and be satisfied. But rather our lives can be filled. Um, verse three, his task is to see what is good for the children of man to do. Well, he does report back in verse 24. He, he's learned something. 
it's not a it's not the fairy tale ending it's not i found out what happened and now i'm happy but he he finds out the best thing that he could observe i wanted to find out what was good and i realized a lot of it was dissatisfying but verse 24 there's nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also i saw is from the hand of god and that's the lesson that we have is that enjoyment can come but it will come to us from God's hand and, and not from our own. It's not about a, what we grasp, but it's about the one who has what gives life and whether or not he'll open his hands to give it to us. So verse 25, for apart from him, who can eat or who could have enjoyment? And most people would say, I, I can. Look, if I, if I work a certain number of hours and I get paid a certain, if I could bill a certain hourly rate, I could eat. And here's one of the things in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, you can eat, but could you have enjoyment in your eating? That, that you can't get from hard work, from discipline, from achievement. Y yeah, you, you, can, you can have power and prestige. You can have a reputation. People may want to be like you, but can you have enjoyment? Th that you, you can't earn that. You can't achieve it. That's, that would be a misunderstanding. That's a foolish way to live, to think that you could, through discipline, hard work, compromise, one day attain what the world offers and think that it would be filled with enjoyment. The Bible shows us what, what we see in the world, which is sometimes people have relatively little, but for whatever reason, they're happy. And sometimes people can have everything and they're miserable. That's not unique to Ecclesiastes. That's anyone who's observing the world. But Ecclesiastes tells us why. It says, we're always going to imitate the king. And when you imitate a king that's showing you his power and his prestige and his wisdom, you're fooled into thinking that, that you can follow his pattern and take hold of things. And what he's reporting back is, that's what I did and I couldn't. And therefore, you will never do better than I did. There's nothing new that you can do that I didn't. That's the story of, of Goheleth. But there are, there's something that I've seen that I'll show you. And so the story of Jesus is a story of a different kind of kingdom. He comes and he announces the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Ecclesiastes is, what is life under the sun? I'm, I'm going to build the greatest kingdom until we could reach the heavens. And he never gets there. It's always under the sun. But Jesus comes and announces a different kind of kingdom. And what that means is Jesus presents himself as a different kind of king. And what is the difference? Some of you would say, oh, he wasn't a guy that was happy. <laughs> he was a man of sorrows. He wasn't a guy that, that lived an enjoyable life. And so doesn't following him mean become miserable? And that's, that would be a fundamental misunderstanding. Yes, there's sacrifice. Yes, there are challenges. But Jesus talks to us in Matthew 11 about John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. And he says, why did you go out into the wilderness to see John the Baptist? Was it because you thought that he'd be wearing fine, soft clothing? John the Baptist was like a lunatic. He was, he was dressed in, in a camel's hair coat, eating, uh, eating insects. Why did you leave this area in the shadow of Herod the king and in the temple that he has built to go out into the wilderness? It's because you know that Herod is corrupt. You know that, that, that this is not honoring God and is not bringing peace to our people. And so you went out to hear John because you were willing to leave. But here's what they said about John is he fasts, his life is hard, and we don't want to follow that. But here's what they say about Jesus. He eats and he drinks. And he's saying, this is the world. You, you didn't like John because he was too strict. And now you're judging me actually because I, I celebrate. I announced good news. What, what is Jesus's first miracle in the book of John? At the wedding in Cana, they run out of wine and he he changes the water into wine. He's not wanting people to get drunk so they could forget themselves. He, he's wanting to show that the wedding 
will be even better when he's there, when he's present. And he tells these stories, these parables about himself as a bridegroom, about this party that he invites people to. What's puzzling, though, is people make excuses and they don't come. And yet is these signs to show that his kingdom is different. And he heals people. And he speaks to them. And the people that he heals rejoice. They have joy. And it's remarkable because when we think, what could we bring to our world to give them joy? We think, what resources can we share? And Jesus comes and he doesn't have a crown. He doesn't, he doesn't come so they see his power. And he doesn't have concubines. And he doesn't have slaves. And he doesn't have silver. And he doesn't have gold. And yet, people recognize his authority. And people rejoice when they discern that he's the king. And so Koheleth gives us a picture of of reaching all that we could reach apart from God and says, I'm going to show you what you already know, but you don't believe because you keep thinking that maybe one day you'll beat the system. There's no beating the system. Jesus comes to utterly transform the system. A new king with a new kingdom and a different person, a different pattern. <laughs> so it takes new, uh, a, a new perspective on, on verse uh, 12, I think it is. I, I'm now having trouble finding it, but what can the man do who comes after the king? Well, now you can do what Jesus did. He loved others. He trusted God. He believed in God's goodness. And he remained with God, which is why in John 14 uh, to 16, when Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, for his death, that's going to be confusing. What, what happens? Because death is always inherently confusing. He, he described himself in John 15 as a, as a vine and says, you're the branches. If you're connected to me, well, then you'll have life. And so, so he ends that section saying, these things have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Along the way, we will have to make sacrifices because the world disincentivizes the kind of joy Jesus has. And so the wise are willing to suffer for a period. We're not suffering because we're giving up joy. We're suffering because we're trying to receive it rather than take hold of it. And then in John 16, he uses the analogy of a woman having birth about pain for a while, but on the other side of it, there's, there's life. And that's the thing is we, we've taken up the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so every time we know good, we know evil with it, and it disappoints us. Jesus comes and he announces eternal life. What we don't have access to in the gardens that we build and the palaces that we make. And in verse 16, he says, you also have sorrow now. He's about to have sorrow. He's going to the cross. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. And so the story of Jesus is a story of a king who, who has what's eternal. Um, he doesn't go out apart from God, but he, he comes out to image God. And that's human beings, that, that the image is, is so minimized because of evil that the goodness is not seen. In Jesus, the fullness of goodness is seen. And where is it seen most clearly? It's seen most clearly in the crown that we put upon his head which was a crown of thorns, where the world said, we see what you're doing, but here's what we think of your kind of kingdom. We're going to humiliate you and make you bleed. And Jesus puts himself up there and he invites us to say, if you're willing to see that I'm the king you should follow, then you will understand the nature of my kingdom because I'm doing this for you. Are you hating life? Well, I've come to meet you in your death. Are you hating your toil? I'm not coming to give you more toil. I'm coming to bring an end, a satisfaction to the work that you're unable to complete. And in the gospel, we're told that human striving will never satisfy us. 
Does that mean we should have no ambition, that we shouldn't work hard? It means we should not do it apart from God. And that's the lesson here. Verse 26, the one who pleases God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. He gives it to us. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and is striving after wind. Would that haunting phrase in verse 26 describe your life? Are, 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 are you full of the business of gathering and collecting? Is that who you are? Is that what you're about? Or is there any knowledge and wisdom and joy that's been offered to you from God? And have you taken it? Have you, have you rested in him and realized, I don't need to know exactly what happens after I die, but if Jesus died and was raised and he died for me, I could be okay not knowing it. And I don't have to, to be the perfect person and finish the work, but if Jesus has finished the work and fulfilled the law, I could come in, though I've already failed in many ways. That is meant to provide rest to our souls that, that starts a new life that is not a life without ambition or hard work. It's a life without vanity. It's a life without futility. And Jesus says, when I announce eternal life, I'm giving you a vision from above the heavens, and now God has come into your midst. How do we follow the king? What, what comes after that one? <laughs> what do we do? We need to reform habits. And so, so here's one habit. I, I wonder if you pray before you eat. You don't have to. There's no rule. There's no commandment. Most Christians do it because that's the custom of the Bible. Jesus himself did it. Before he ate, he looked at the heavens and he gave thanks. Do you pray before your meals? You should. Um, but why are you praying? And there may be any number of ways you pray. Lord, give me strength for the day. Um, Lord, I'm recognizing that you fed me. I wonder for how many of you, you're actually pausing, not simply to give thanks with your, with your words, but to stop and remember. And, and there's something there where, where you can easily say, well, look, I, I worked 70 hours this week, and I billed those hours, and so this $10 thing from the food truck, I earned it. But, but, but the best thing for a sense of entitlement is to realize, but I, but I could have gotten hit by a, a city biker on the way to the food truck. Just because I worked, just because I made the money, doesn't mean that I really am entitled to it. But if I'm here, there's evidence that the world is not just a world of evil, but, but God's goodness is still there. And, and if there's provision, I'm going to stop to remember it. And so one of the key things we do when we pray for a meal is we stop and we recognize we could gain the whole world but lose our souls. But God will give us what we need. And so today, do you need food? If he gives it to you, it may not be the best tasting thing you've had all week. But as you stop and remember, the Lord will give me what I need. It puts you back in a paradigm that says, if the Lord is good and wise and powerful and he'll give you what you need, then actually you can have joy because joy is always given to you. It's never ceased. And, and this pattern that I want to commend that when you stop and pray, it's going to take some effort because the first couple of times you sit down, you're going to say, Lord, thank you for this food. And you're going to say, if I'm honest with my mind, I'm actually not thankful. I would like to be having a different meal, and now I'm supposed to be thankful, and not only am I not thankful, but I'm guilty again, because here's another example of how I'm not spiritually good enough. Um, praying before a meal is not meant to be a, a psychological exercise. <laughs> Stop and realize, if I'm not good enough, if I'm not spiritual enough, um, it's exhausting to try to become good enough, and so God gave me this meal, and if I didn't deserve it and he gave me that, let me just trust him, that he'll give me other things. And so... I'll be thankful. And we practice that. And two meals of the day, you may get it wrong because you're thinking about your email or you're feeling that you didn't pray sincerely enough. 
but that one week where you have victory and say, I actually feel like all of the things I'm worrying about are futile. God will provide. So I, I, could, go, I could go back to work and, and face the boss who's about to ask me about the incompetent thing that I did um, because my work is not in vain. And it's that, that following the king and, and having new habits to say, wisdom says that goodness will come from him. And I will not close my hands to grab it, but I will open my hands because God who has grabbed good things will open them and, and fill our hands. That takes faith. You don't earn anything, including joy in life or your salvation. It's always by God's grace. Um, the mistake of Koheleth was to take the vision of Eden and try to build it apart from God. We are to be with God. And with God, his life will work itself out in us. So practice that this week. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are people who, who work hard religiously. We work hard in secular ways. And we burn out. We want to work hard and then we don't. And we're dissatisfied. And Lord, um, some of us are being sustained in happiness. But all of us know that this world at times will give reasons to rejoice, but at so many times will we'll show that joy is fleeting. So Lord, we, we want to gain true wisdom. We want to live under the true king. We want to be citizens of your kingdom. We don't want to be apart from joy, and therefore we can't be apart from you. So thank you that Jesus forgives us and welcomes us back. Thank you that Jesus dies our death and lives our life. Thank you that joy is something real that we can have. And Lord, help us to be a people that um, receive it with thanks when it comes. And when it's not there, let us not give up hope that you will bring it to us again. And so, Lord, help us to trust you this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.